Can you hear me? Yes? No? Yes? We're good. Okay. I apologize. All right. So those of you online, I'm starting to tell a story about being in my freshman year of high school. My family and I decided to go to the movies. We didn't avoid the movies because my parents thought it was of the devil. We just didn't go because of money. Like, we watched movies at home, but it's just cheaper to, you know, get it from the library and and watch it at home than to, uh, you know, go to the movies. Anyone remember the really big discs? You know, I'm I'm not talking like VHS tapes. The really big discs, you'd push in that. And if you even, like, at any point, like, paused and tried to rewind, it, like, actually damaged the disc. So the next time you watched it, it would skip. So if you got a a disc from the library that, like, had been watched 20 times, there'd be, like, you know, 40 skips through the whole entire thing. It's really annoying. But anyway, we did not go to the movies very often. But my parents got told there was this new movie out that they would absolutely love. And it was perfectly appropriate. For their, uh, let's say I was 14. So 14-year-old son and 12-year-old sons. And so we bought tickets to go to this movie. But then they told me what movie we were going to see. Now, I had not heard of this movie, but the title alone made me regret the idea of even going with my family. Like, if I had known that God was going to allow humans to invent the iPhone in like 20, 30 years, I probably would have prayed he'd drop one into my hands to rescue me from the pain I was about to endure. Because I just knew this movie was going to be a chick flick. This, this movie was going to be some sort of rom-com. It was not going to be funny. Like a sports-loving 14-year-old boy like me was going to hate this movie. What movie am I talking about? The Princess Bride. Now, you probably can guess what happened over the course of 90 minutes. I walked in reluctantly, rolling my eyes, can't believe I'm about to go through with this. And 90 minutes later, I'm laughing, I'm smiling, my brother and I are talking about R-U-O-S's, and, and, you know, anybody want to peanut? I mean, we could not stop talking about it. We loved this movie. I went from reluctant to cheerful. Any of you had that experience? Maybe it wasn't a, a movie, but, but maybe there was something that you were about to go do and you did not want to do it. Maybe it was a class you had to take. Maybe it was some sort of adventure. Like next thing you know, you're in a kayak and you're like, I don't want to be doing this. Or may, maybe it, I, I don't know, it was a movie or the opera. Something about it made you go, I don't want to go through with this. But over the course of the next few minutes, hours, days, or weeks, Something in your heart changed and you looked back upon it and you realized that was good. I actually enjoyed it. I'm thankful for that. If you're a first time guest with us, my name is Aaron, teaching pastor for Riverwood. And we are in the middle of a series called How to Give. And we've been talking throughout this series how for some of us, this whole entire concept of giving is hard. Many of us approach it very reluctantly. If that's you... I'm hoping that today you will go from reluctant to cheerful. That you will go from not wanting to give or you, you, you only give if you claim to be a Christian because God commands it, but you don't do it cheerfully. I'm hoping that something over the course of the next 30 minutes or so changes and transforms within you. That you will become that cheerful giver because it is actually God's best for you as he wants to use you to bless the world. So as we get ready to head into 2 Corinthians 9, let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, pause before we come into the scriptures because you are ultimately our teacher. 
we need to, we want to hear from you. So, Father, I pray for those that are, are bringing in something. They're, they're struggling maybe because of work. Uh, maybe there's something relationally. Maybe they're worried for a loved one. Um, maybe there's even financial things happening. Lord, we just bring all of that to you right now, and we, we place it before you, that you would crash through all of those things, that heaven would break through, and our minds and our hearts would connect with you through the teaching of your scriptures. So, God, open us now. And Lord, while we're praying, I just pray for our friend Lori. I pray that as she's in the hospital with this bleeding ulcer, that you would bring healing. That you would give Randy peace as he comforts his wife. That you give wisdom to the doctor. Lord, I know she's been through this before, but we just pray that this would be the last time. That you would give the doctors wisdom in what to do and how to minister to this. And if there needs to be a medication change, whatever needs to be done, please, Father, provide that healing for her. But Lord, would you also let Lori know that we love her that we are her church family and that we would be able to support her. And through our generosity, she would feel comforted and loved and knowing that, that you got her and she would sense it through your presence and she would sense it through us. So we lift Lori up to you today as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, if you brought a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you uh, are a first-time guest with us, whether online or here in the building, and you did not bring a Bible, don't worry about it. We are going to put the scripture up on the screen. But if you're looking around here or online, you can't see it, but some people are pulling out their phones. If you have a digital Bible, we are totally fine with you pulling that out. Uh, If you want a paper copy of the Bible and just don't have one, we have some on our resource table, so please stop by there. We have two different translations. We'll get the one that will fit you best. And if you're online and you really want a Bible, just go to Walmart or go to christianbook.com and you can order one. And if you just cannot afford one, simply send us an email, riverwood at weareriverwood.org, and we will find a way to get a Bible into your hands. Because we believe that God communicates through the scriptures. He wrote through human authors about his love for humanity. Humans sinned. We got separated from a perfect holy God. And yet the Bible shows us that God loved us so much that Jesus himself, God the Son, came, took on human flesh, lived that sinless life that we couldn't live, but went and died the death we were supposed to die. And through his death on a cross, he brings us forgiveness for our sin. The penalty has been paid, and we can come into a relationship with God. We want you to know this story, and we believe the story is contained in the scriptures. And so please get yourself a Bible, not just so you can use it here on Sundays, but so that you can use it any day of the week. Uh, We've been in 2 Corinthians 9 all week, uh, I mean all all series. Um, We did verse 7 last week, but guess what? We're going to actually do it again. So join me, uh, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 9. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A long time ago in a land far away, and I'm not talking Star Wars, I'm talking the late 90s in Venezuela, when my wife and I were serving at a missionary kids' school, we had kids that their parents were missionaries all around Venezuela and and the, the region, and they would come and they would board at our school and we would then provide their education. And, and many times the parents would come to visit the kids. We would have parents weekends. And so we got to know some of the missionaries. Well, I remember this one missionary couple that I got to meet. And I end up in a conversation with the wife. And she starts telling me what an incredible Bible teacher her husband was. And now I had no reason to doubt her. Maybe he was an incredibly gifted teacher of the scriptures. But the reason that she gave me for why he was a good Bible teacher kind of left me with some doubt. Basically, what made him a good Bible teacher 
was the slowness by which he taught. You see, they had just been on home assignment back in America. The way it was working back then, I think it's still this way, but you would serve four years overseas on the field, and then you would go back home to America, back to your sending church, to reconnect with fundraisers, to maybe do more fundraising, but also just to kind of rest and recoup. Well, this couple had gotten really involved in their church, and he began teaching a Sunday school class. And she really enjoyed watching him teach because he was so slow. And not because he talked really slow, but because some weeks he'd get up to teach and they would only make it through a phrase of the Bible. Some weeks they only got through one word and she was impressed. I was not. I I was thinking like, that's ridiculous. Like just talking about one word does not make you a good Bible teacher. Like the goal is to help people know the scriptures. Now, again, in his defense, I never had the chance to see him, hear him teach Maybe if I had been in his Sunday school class, I would have been blown away and so thankful and grateful for what I learned, even when it was just one word. But I'm just confessing, in that moment, I thought this is absolutely ridiculous. This is pompous that you could think you're a good Bible teacher because you're going to do one word. And today, I'm going to attempt to do the same thing. Because if you were with us last week, you realized that we did three-fourths of verse 7, but we chopped off the last phrase. The last phrase is, for God loves a cheerful giver. And as you look at the title screen, you notice that our word is cheerfully. So we are going to spend our entire time talking about this one word. Why did I not lump it on last week? I mean, because after all, last week we saw Paul teaching us to give, to use my really ridiculous adverb, to give whippily, willingly, intentionally, and prayerfully. Now, Paul brings cheerful into that. So why didn't I just lump that all together? Well, it's not because whippically is even a dumber adverb. The reason I chopped it off is because I felt this needed its own sermon. Because you see, this is something that I have struggled with. And I figured that if I struggle with this, that maybe there's one or two other people that also struggle with this and they didn't need to hear it just lumped on to last week, but to actually hear it talked about, to realize this is a big deal. It's worth its own sermon. The reason I struggle with this is because I carry some baggage. Some of the baggage comes from my upbringing. The church I grew up in, they loved to give cheerfully. The way they went about it, though, left me with some questions and caused me to move away from cheerful giving to reluctant giving. You see, almost every single Sunday in my church growing up, we would have two sermons. We would have the regular sermon, like what I'm doing right now. Ours would go usually 45, 50, sometimes 55 minutes. Our our services were literally two hours long. We sang a lot. And sometimes if, if the spirit was really moving, we'd go two and a half hours. That meant it was even better Sunday. And so we would have the regular sermon, but then it would come time for the offering. And the pastor would walk back up, or sometimes one of the elders or someone else in the church would walk up with their Bible, and they would give a second sermon. Now, it was only usually like five, ten minutes. Maybe you'd call it more of a devotional. But almost every single week, we had a sermon about giving. But when that person would walk up and say, we're getting ready to take this morning's offering, there would literally be people in the church family who would cheer. Now, maybe that was their way of showing that they are a cheerful giver. 
But I, over time, began to think that perhaps it was something different. Now, in a moment, I'm going to critique my church that I grew up in. And so I want to take a moment and come to their defense. I found Jesus through this church. I saw some people authentically and passionately pursue Jesus. So I am thankful and grateful for the church that I grew up in, the people that I grew up around. They're still friends with my parents to this day, and many of them have moved all over the place, and yet there is still a bond and a connection that happened between them. So I'm grateful that I got to be a part of it and witness it. But as I have grown older, there are some convictions that I've come to where I now differ from them. And one of them is in this area of giving. Because you see, part of the reason they became cheerful in their giving is because of what I felt was now, I, I feel, is twisted theology. Now, again, my elementary, middle school-aged mind may have misinterpreted things. Maybe they didn't truly teach this. But this is what I, as a kid, came away with. You see, we were taught to give generously. I, I remember right away, as a kid growing up, hey, you made $5 mowing a lawn? 50 cents goes to the church. Like 10% automatically. It was just ingrained in me. That was generous giving. But what I was also taught is that God would return back to you a hundredfold. In Matthew 19, 29, Jesus says, anyone who's left father and mother and houses and whatnot, for his sake would, retain, would, would, would uh, inherit a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So they basically took that type of verse, that idea, and then what Ed walked us through on verse 6 out of Second Corinthians 9, this idea of giving generously, you will reap generously. They took those two things together and then said, so if you give 10%, you can expect God to give you a hundredfold back. So let, let me just work out the math for you. Let's say that you got $10,000. Maybe it was through your job. Maybe it was a gift. Maybe it was an investment. You got $10,000. So you're expected to give 10% to God. So that meant $1,000 would go to the church. But God would give you a hundredfold. So you could expect back $100,000. I mean, that is a brilliant investment scheme. So of course I'm going to cheer. If I give $1,000, it's going to turn into 100000 Sign me up. Yes. However, over time, I began to notice that the people in my church were not driving Cadillacs. None of them were living in mansions. I did not see any of them giving millions of dollars into some, you know, work. Now, many of them were middle-class people. They were hardworking people. They were just good salt-of-the-earth Iowans. But I did not see that hundredfold return that I kept hearing about Sunday after Sunday. And so I began to get a little jaded. I began to get a little cynical. I began to pull away from that kind of, that brand of Christianity. The interesting thing is I did not stop giving. Even in college, as a poor college student, when I made something, it had been so ingrained in me, I would still give 10%. But what was happening was I was not doing it cheerfully. When I would give, I had doubts, I had questions, like, does this even really matter? I did it, but I was reluctant. I was not cheerful. Maybe you carry some similar baggage. Maybe it's because of some twisted theology. Maybe it's because of some legalism that was just pounded into you. And suddenly you don't feel like, hey, I'm supposed to be giving willingly, intentionally, prayerfully. Like, no, it feels like I'm supposed to be giving forcefully. 
Like, I have to do this. If I don't give 10%, God's going to kick me out of heaven. And, and suddenly you don't find yourself doing this cheerfully. You do this fearfully. Or, or maybe you struggle with this idea of giving cheerfully because the baggage is due to your own financial struggles. Like, it's hard to give cheerfully when you're not even sure how you're going to be able to pay the mortgage. Like, maybe you're worried about, are we going to be able to fill the car with gas? Or right now, okay, we can fill the car with gas, but if something broke down on it, we don't know what we do. Like, you're so deep in debt. Like, I have nothing to give. How can I even do it then cheerfully? How do you get there when you have such baggage that causes you to be so reluctant? We're going to answer that today. Before we do, though, I need to point out two things. The first thing, this whole entire concept of giving cheerfully is not just a New Testament thing. This is actually a God thing that we see throughout all of time. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 15, we read this verse. This is Deuteronomy 15, 10. It says, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord, your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Now, as you look at that verse, you can kind of see some overlap with second Corinthians nine, especially verses six and seven. I mean, the, the second half there talks about God blessing you. Well, we saw uh, two weeks ago in verse six that when you, you know, uh, uh, sow uh, generously, you, you can reap generously. So you kind of see that there. Then in the first half, you see there how we are to give freely. Your heart should not be grudging. A lot of the echoes of verse seven. But the thing is, this verse is not about giving to God. When you read that, you look at that and you think, oh, okay, yeah, you shall give to him freely. But when you put this verse back into context, the him is the poor person. This is about giving to the poor, not giving to God. Remember last week, the true truth? The true truth is that what we have in life is not ours. What we have is actually God's. God owns everything. So if he already owns everything, how can you give to him? I mean, I mean, like, I don't have my phone in my pocket, but like, it'd be ridiculous for you to say, hey, Aaron, I have a gift for you. And you hand me my own phone. Like, no, that's already my phone. Like, how do you give to God when it's already his? And besides, as he says in Psalm 50, even if he had needs, would he tell us? No, because honestly, God doesn't need anything. So he doesn't need us to give to him. Who does need? The poor. The poor lack something. And so God is commanding his, his Israelites, the Jewish people, to give to the poor to alleviate their suffering. Now, I'm going to take this even farther. Because we've been talking through this whole entire generosity campaign that this is not just about money. So yes, you need to give to the poor. This is why at Riverwood, if you're a first-time guest, as Jake was saying, if you fill out that connection card or you send us that email, we'll donate $5 to Compassion International to help a child who is materially poor. These are kids who live in places where they sometimes struggle to know what are they going to eat? Are they going to have food? Are are they going to have clothing, education? 
And so we work with compassion to help provide those things for them. That's why we say, would you fill that out so that we can just give that $5 donation to make a small difference in the life of a child? We need to help meet the needs of the materially poor. But there are also people who may not be materially poor, but they're relationally poor. This is the person who, you know, kids, teenagers, this is the kid who sits alone at lunch. This is the, the person at work who's socially awkward. This is the, the, the person that, that kind of only goes out to the mailbox in the neighborhood when no one else is going to be around. Oftentimes they're relationally poor because they're socially awkward. And yet they matter to God. So could you give some of your time to the relationally poor? And if you do, you're to give it freely, not grudgingly. In fact, you are to do this cheerfully. How about the emotionally poor? How about when you come across someone who's just really, really down? They're struggling with their mental health. They're, they're, they're hurting. Can you give them some of your time, influence? Some of you, you have skills in knowing how to ask the right questions. You have skills and wisdom of knowing when to not say anything. You need to give that to that emotionally poor person. And not just keep it to yourself. Ah, I don't want to intrude. No, you probably need to intrude to show them God loves you, God cares for you. And then there are people who are spiritually poor. They need to know that God loves them. They need to know that Jesus came to earth. They need to know he went to a cross for them. So if you are a Jesus follower, you have a command from God to go to the spiritually poor, to love them like Jesus would love them and to live among them like Jesus would live among them. You need to be generous. You need to give. What we see in Deuteronomy 15 isn't relegated to just Old Testament. Because when you come back to 2 Corinthians 9, you discover, oh, the whole entire thing is all about giving to the poor. Remember in week one, as we looked at the first five verses and we talked about giving expectantly, the whole reason that the Corinthians were kind of having this expectation to give it's because Paul had sent Timothy, uh, and Titus and a couple other guys to get, get the collection. Because the Corinthians had told Paul they'd heard about this giving to the ministry of the saints. They wanted to participate. So they're like, yeah, sign us up. So Paul sends Titus and some guys to collect what the Corinthians said we want to do. And then what the idea was, was all that money was going to be collected, sent to Jerusalem, and the apostles would use it to distribute out to the, the needs of the saints, the, the followers of Jesus. They were meeting the needs of the people, just like we saw in our Defining Church series through the book of Acts. This whole idea of giving, it, it's not just this New Testament concept, and it's not this idea of, well, we've got to give to God. Now, God does not need your money. God wants to use your money and your influence and your skills, and your time to help the materially poor, the emotionally poor, the, the, the spiritually poor. He wants you to give these things to them. Why? You realize that if we're seeing this through all of Scripture, I mean, all the way from the Mosaic Covenant through the, the New Testament, it's because it reflects the character of God. Th this is who God is. Because if you think about it, we, because of our sins... We're spiritually poor. That spiritual poverty made us emotionally poor, made us relationally poor. We, we need a relationship with God. And for many of us, because of the brokenness of our world, it, it's left some of us materially poor. And yet God steps in 
and loves us, rescues us, heals us, provides for us. This is who he is. And if we are going to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved, we've got to make this a part of us as well. The second thing I want to point out to you before we answer, how do we do this? 2 Corinthians 9, 7, the word that gets translated cheerful is the Greek word hilaron. Now, I do not know Greek. That may not be the exact way to pronounce it. But what I do know is that is where we get our English word hilarious. Now, I tried to find a translation of the Bible that actually translated God wants a hilarious giver. Couldn't find one. All of them used cheerful and wisely so because all of you just laughed when you heard that idea. The, the word hilarious has with it almost like a unseriousness, uh, it, 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 a, a, maybe a slight irreverence. It seems almost like over the top. So cheerful is the right word to translate. But I want you to realize that your cheerfulness is not just to be smile-inducing. Like, it is to be delight-inducing. Like, it should bring joy to the giver and to the receiver. Like, it should be so over the top that you almost might mark it as hilarious. It needs to be just overwhelming. But how in the world do you do that? Like, if you're already struggling with reluctance, how do you get this place of reflecting God's character, of almost giving so much, it's ridiculous, it's hilarious? Two ways. The first is just keep this in context. Back in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, we don't see Paul just kind of tack this on at the end. This isn't just point four. This is a result. It's the result of what we heard last week. When you give willingly, intentionally, and prayerfully, an outflow of that will be joy. You see, sometimes I think the people in my church, when they said, okay, today we're going to be taking today's offering, and they went, woohoo! They were actually faking it till they could make it. All right, so I'm not saying that when Jake comes up at the, towards the end of our service and says, all right, now we're going to move into our time of worship through giving, you don't need to fake it. Woohoo! Instead, you start figuring out how to give willingly. That's the more important thing to deal with. How do you begin to do this willingly? But then also intentionally. How can you be intentional with what God has given you? Well, that leads you to being prayerful. You've got to talk to God. If it's all his, go and talk to who owns it. Heavenly Father, you've made me a steward of these things. Where do you want me to give? How much of it do you want me to give? How, how much should I actually be keeping? How do I give of my finances, my influence, my skills, and my time? How do I open up my fist to give these things? And when you start working that way, willingly, intentionally, and prayerfully, you know what's going to begin to happen? You will begin to find joy. I'm going to warn you. Sometimes when you begin to pray and ask God, hey, what do you want me to give? Sometimes he's going to ask you to give something and you're going to find yourself going, whoa, okay, that's a little too much. Oh, that's because you're still thinking of it as yours. But as you begin to break through, as you say, okay, God, I have no idea how you're going to help me pay the mortgage this weekend. But if you tell me I need to give this, I'm going to follow through. I'm going to do this. I'm being willing. I'm being intentional. We've been praying. We've been talking about this. This is what you want me to do. So I'm going to give it. And what you're going to discover on the other side is cheerfulness. I found a video this week of a woman named Rachel. 
that she and her husband really began to pray about these things. And as you watch the video, you're going to notice this isn't just about finances. It's definitely a big part of it, but you're going to notice the way that it wasn't just giving money. It was also giving their time. It was giving their influence. It was giving their home. It was giving their life. So if you would take the next three minutes and watch Rachel's story. Five years ago, we wanted to start looking into starting a family. We were pretty typical to income married people. We had a house, we had two new cars, but a lot of it felt really empty. And so we kind of started questioning, what if we started doing things differently than what the American uh, standard life looked like? So we um, looked into adoption and then ultimately into foster care. Some of the concerns that you have when kids go back to biological parents is that you don't get to know how they are. You don't get to know if they're safe. You don't know if their situation has really improved or changed. Um, So all in all, we've had eight foster kids in the last four years, two of whom we have gotten to adopt. We noticed when we were fostering that most of our kids' mothers became parents as teenagers. And we started talking about what was out there as a safety net for these young moms before their kids were removed by the state. And that's how I came upon Young Lives. During that time, I met a 17-year-old girl who was pregnant. And she was in a living situation that was less stable. So Matt and I, we started talking about um, having her move in. We knew that that meant that the plans that we had were going to be put on hold or completely thrown out. Biggest concern was finances. You know, my husband's a teacher. We're now a family of six. But we just felt like the Lord said that he would provide. And so we moved her in in June. And she had her baby in August. And uh, I got to drive her to the hospital and stay with her. So I got to hold her hand while she gave birth. It's a huge privilege to walk in motherhood with her, to raise our babies next to each other. We feel like our most effective ministry is being tangible, consistent, stable. I am here for you no matter what. We wanted to help her do whatever it is that she was wanting to do, which was college. Um, We're sacrificing things for her financially, time-wise. You know, I keep the baby while she's at college. Every month there's uh, stressors, just like every other family. Um, A car breaks or someone needs new shoes or whatever. And every month um, we see God's power um, and his provision show up in um, small ways and huge ways. Um, Sometimes I don't know how we're going to get through the month. I'm more dependent on him than I was four years ago. And I'm more in love with him than I was four years ago because of it. My favorite line in that video is when Rachel said that it has been a privilege to walk in motherhood with this girl. To say that, she's saying this has brought us joy. They're giving cheerfully. Doesn't mean it's been easy. As you just heard, they're living on a teacher's salary. It's hard some months to make things meet. And yet, as now she looks back, and they've done this willingly, intentionally, and prayerfully, it has brought out joy. 
And so if you want to experience joy, if you want to be a cheerful giver, start first on how to do this willingly, how to be intentional, have this conversation with, with God. And as you pray about it and begin to do it, the joy will come. The second thing that I think will help us in, in being these cheerful givers is to look at the generosity of Jesus. Have you ever noticed how generosity begets generosity? I mean, like when you see exorbitant generosity, you, you tend to notice other people begin to give into it. This is why you see GoFundMe campaigns just blow through their goal. Or when a natural disaster happens, suddenly they you know, get way more money than they ever could use in the recovery. Because sometimes we get so moved, we see generosity, we want to participate with it as well. And so because of this truth, I want to encourage you, look at the generosity of Jesus. Because if you look at his generosity, I think it's going to move within you. And what do we see him do? Uh, we've already talked about this. In fact, we talk about this almost every single Sunday. We see him give of his wisdom. He gives of his presence. We see him give some people healing. He gave some people food. But ultimately, he gave what was most precious. He gave his life because he loves you. Hebrews 12, too, tells us that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. His joy was not in the cross. The, the cross was hell. I mean, he was whipped beforehand. Cross, I mean, and nails went through the wrist and the feet. He hung up there. He ultimately died of suffocation. He couldn't breathe. There was no joy in the cross. No, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You see, on the other side of the cross was you. You are his joy. And so he cheerfully and willingly and intentionally gave of his life so that he could have you. He wanted you to be redeemed. He wanted you out of the clutch of the sin. He wanted you back in a relationship with him and his father and the Holy Spirit. And when you begin to look at that generosity, it moves you. And you suddenly find yourself wanting to participate in the things that matter to God. And as you then give to what matters to him, where you see his generosity, you start giving to it, you'll begin to have joy. And when the day comes that you breathe your last and you stand before God, you'll start sounding like Rachel. And you'll start saying, God, it was a privilege to get to use the things you gave me, my finances, my influence, my skills, and my time, to take these things and use them to bless others. Thank you. That was a joy. If you want to give cheerfully, look to Jesus. Because he came for us who were materially poor, emotionally poor, relationally poor, spiritually poor. And as we begin to give like Jesus gave, we will discover that same cheerfulness. So Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would do this in us for your glory and for our joy. Help us, God, to be cheerful givers. Father, I just confess, there have been so many times that I have given, but I have done it reluctantly because I have mistakenly thought that these things were mine. God, I pray that you just continue to change my eyesight, you change my viewpoint, you change my attitude, that I would not see this as mine, I would see it as yours, and I would find it a privilege to want to give 
these things to bless others. Heavenly Father, you know how broken this world is. It's so broken, we could not save ourselves from our sin. Jesus, that's why you came. You came to this earth so that you could die in our place. Because you gave like that, God, help us to reflect that character of yours. Help us to give generously. God, move in us. Help us as we leave today to go into our workplaces, to go into our neighborhoods, to go into our schools, to to go wherever you lead us. And we would be generous people with our finances, our influence, our skills, and our time, that we would open up our fists, our hands, and allow you to give through us. Because as we do so, you are bringing healing to this broken world, but you are also bringing healing to us because you are transforming us into that image of Christ. So God, again, I ask, would you accomplish this? Would you change us, mold us, transform us away from the reluctant giver into cheerful generosity? Because God, I am firmly convinced that is when you will be incredibly glorified, you will be lifted up, and we will have found it a joyful privilege to give. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.